All right, so hello once again to all of y'all. All of y'all out yonder in points unknown in the Cotton Belt, welcome to another episode of the Cotton Companion. This is episode 12. Today, what is today? My goodness. It's February 11th, which is, I don't have our calendar in front of me. It's Thursday, February it's Thursday. 11th. Yes. <laughs> you know, I can't remember what day of the week it is these days. That's how busy we are here in the Cotton Grower offices in Cordova, Tennessee. But we are happy to have y'all with us today. Um, as I say, it's the second week of February. It is still very cold outside. We sat there and watched Peyton Manning and the Broncos win Super Bowl 50. I know my guy Jim Stedman, the senior editor of Cotton Grower, who's with us here, really enjoyed that. Am I right? Oh, that was a great game. Uh all the way right down to the end. So, in spite of the fact that uh, that Eli made a uh, a funny face up in the in the booth, and that seems to be getting up in the uh, up in their box, and that seems to be getting just as much uh, credibility or coverage as as the game itself. I guess it was a good day for the Mannings. It was for you know he's catching you and I haven't even talked about this. <laughs> um, as y'all probably know, Jim is a Vol fan, uh, Tennessee Vol fan, and I am an Ole Miss fan. That is. Eli's resting face like he's a mm-hmm. like forgive me Olivia Manning if you're listening to the Cotton Companion podcast he's a mouth breather like he breathes it through his mouth like <laughs> his that's just his normal face you know people are hammering him about it um like you say it was a good day for the Mannings all in all um <laughs> I I did make it back in time for the game but I had spent most or in fact all of um Super Bowl weekend in Dallas for the National Cotton Council annual meeting, um, which was truly uh, more so than normal, kind of a news-heavy affair, a news-heavy weekend. We had a lot of stuff going on. Today's Cotton Companion episode is going to draw almost entirely from um, the events that transpired in Dallas over this past weekend. It was just four days ago now, but um, a lot was going on. To give you a little color, to give you a little bit of the backdrop of what else was going on, we're we're at the Omni Hotel in Dallas, which is truly a great hotel, very nice hotel, good for, you know, a big um, uh, meeting event like the one that the Cotton Council was putting on. Unfortunately for me, simultaneously at this hotel, I can't remember if I told you this, Jim, there was also like a girls' middle school and high school volleyball tournament going on, like literally thousands of these girls who are walking around this hotel and they're all minimum probably 5'10", 5'11". Okay. Now those of y'all who are listening to us who have never seen me out and about, I'm pushing 5'9 in my cowboy boots. And so it was very difficult uh, self-esteem wise weekend for me to be running around at the Omni Hotel in Dallas. Um, Cause these, I mean, it was like junior high homecoming dance all over again. They all, they all just much taller. It was like being, being with a bunch of Amazons, but it was a uh, it was a humbling experience. I'll say I, that. Much. I literally am just sitting here trying to picture this whole situation that <laughs> that you have all of the all of the leadership of the U.S. cotton industry, you know, walking the hallways and going into all their caucus sessions and and everything else, and the rest of the hotel is filled with five foot ten to six foot yeah. middle school girls. Yeah, yeah, a high school. I mean, they were up into high school too. I mean, it was. I don't think you could make a movie about that. You probably couldn't. It was something to see. You definitely didn't have any trouble distinguishing who was with which group. <laughs> no, um, I doubt it. Throughout, I doubt it. Throughout the weekend there at the Omni. But um, a lot of stuff of importance did occur that weekend. Obviously, the council, um, this is the event uh, each year. They're meeting each year 
where they lay out some important uh, news items. Chief among those are their acreage projection, which they do via, uh, which they produce via uh, a survey of their constituents, growers throughout the Cotton Belt. Mm-hmm. Um, they, Jim's going to talk a little bit about that later. Uh, Jody Campiche, the new VP of Economics and policy analysis. policy analysis. There you go. She laid out her uh, economic report or, uh, for, for 2016. Jim is also going to bring us up to date on that. And, of course, they introduced their new leadership, uh, chief among which is new chairman Shane Stevens out of Greenwood, Mississippi. We're going to talk a little bit about him when we get into our news segment, which is coming up next. And then a little later in our podcast today, we're going to talk about the most hot button sort of topic that's out there right now, certainly the most hot button item that was going on in Dallas this past weekend, which is this oil seed designation. Today is the 11th, so it was just about a little over a week ago when um, Ag Secretary Vilsack announced that he was essentially punting this issue back to Congress. He was not going to make this designation as the cotton industry had been urging him to. The fight is not over, as we will talk about later on in the podcast. There's still a glimmer of hope left on this thing. We're going to get deep into that a little later later on in the episode. But for now, we want to take a quick break, and uh, when we come back, Jim will be with you uh, for uh, our news segment for today. So stick around. We'll be right back. Cotton Grower Magazine has the honor of saluting exceptional sacrifice and contribution to the cotton industry through our annual Cotton Grower Cotton Achievement Award. Since 1970, Cotton Grower has handed out this distinguished honor to one individual who demonstrates tireless dedication to the cotton industry through involvement, innovation, and leadership in those issues that have a large impact on U.S. cotton as a whole. Achievement Award winners are chosen after extensive research and thoughtful input from around the industry. Cotton Grower offers sincere gratitude to Case IH and to Delta Pine for sponsoring the Cotton Grower Cotton Achievement Award. In joining the effort to recognize and honor industry leaders, these companies demonstrate their devotion to the cotton industry and their desire to see growers succeed. Well, welcome back, everyone. As Beck said, we're going to get into the news segment a little bit uh, at this point. And again, uh, the majority of the news came out of Dallas this weekend uh, in terms of uh, what's going on in the U.S. cotton industry. Let's start with uh, the National Cotton Council's acreage projections. Uh, as Beck said, the, uh, the National Cotton Council mails a questionnaire out in mid-December uh, to producers across the uh, 17-state cotton belt asking them for the number of acres devoted to cotton and other crops uh, for that were devoted to, to cotton and other crops last year, as well as what they're planning for the coming season. It's probably a bit more scientific than, uh, than the, the survey that, that we do here at Cotton Grower for our January issue. If you recall, um, the results of our survey uh, set cotton acres at, or predicted cotton acres at 9.083 million acres for 2016. Uh, There have been some other projections out there over the last few weeks, uh, but this is the one that everybody waits for to see what uh, what the Cotton Council is going to come up with. Lo and behold, uh, according to the Council survey, they're looking at 9.1 million cotton acres, which is basically a 6.2 percent increase over last year, really not that far off from our number. 
Right on top of it. Really. Right on top of yeah. it. Uh, if you break that down a little bit more, uh, they're talking about 8.9 million acres of upland cotton, uh, which is up 5.7%, uh, and a 31.2% increase in the ELS uh, extra-long staple cotton, uh, taking it up to a little over 208,000 acres total. Of course, most of that is grown in uh, California and Arizona. Um, again, Jody Campiche uh, with the National Cotton Council made the presentation. She's basically projecting here that uh, with the abandonment number set for 11% for the U.S., and this is based on historical averages, uh, they're, they're predicting that cotton belt harvested acres are going to be roughly 8.1 million acres, uh, using an average yield per, per acre of 831 pounds. That gives us a projected cotton crop of 14 million bales, uh, roughly 13.4 million upland, and uh, almost 600,000 ELS. Um, when you look at it from a regional basis, it gets, uh, it gets a little more interesting. Uh, looking at the southeast, uh, you're looking at it, uh, they're, they're, the survey basically indicated a 5% a five, a 5 decline in cotton acres across all of the, uh, all the southeast. They're looking at increased acreage, however, in Alabama and Florida, a slight decrease for the, uh, for the other four states. In the Mid-South, they're looking at, uh, at planting 1.2 million acres, which is almost a 25% jump from last year. So for the Mid-South, that's, uh, that's good news. Uh, with looking at increases in every one of the Mid-South states at this point. Uh, and you get to the Southwest, we're looking at 5.3 million cotton acres. That's up 6%, uh, with cotton area expected to grow in Texas, Oklahoma, and Kansas, all three states. Out West, uh, producers are looking at 213,000 acres of upland cotton. That's up almost 25% from last year with most of that increase coming out of Arizona as, as they're predicting some slight decreases in upland acres in California and New Mexico. Uh, Arizona is also going, looking to plant almost 35% more uh, ELS cotton uh, with a slight increase also in California in those acreage. Uh, the reasons behind some of this, uh, survey responses indicate that some of the modest increases in cotton acreage is largely the result of weak, weaker prices of competing crops, and improved conditions for water and favorable planting time weather throughout the belt. So uh, we'll be interested to see how, uh, how all that plays out here over as we move into planting season, or, or as the rest of the country moves into planting season. South Texas, we recognize you're already in the fields. Yeah. I, you wish that there were a more positive, bearish reason, or rather bullish reason, for moderate increases than what we're hearing, which is, well, other prices are sucking even more <laughs> right now. You know, I mean, for lack of a more eloquent way to put that, I, um, I, I, I feel like they're like last year's plannings were uh, 8.5 belt wide, right? By the time it was all said and done, yes. Yes, so like final final planted were mm -hmm. 8.5 million. Our number this year was slightly over 9 million. Okay, the main reason for that slight uptick what for us, when I got done with our acreage survey, were all these acres in Texas that never got the chance to get planted last year because of that wacky spring that they had where they just literally couldn't get out into the fields. Right. I mean, you're talking about a 
estimates I heard were around 400,000 acres that just never got into the ground. And realistically, I think that's that's pretty much the way all the surveys we've seen so far. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's no, what I was yeah, at. no yeah. nobody's jumping up and down saying we're you know, we're going to we're increasing acreage uh, you know, massive amounts at this point, certainly not in this market environment that we're in. Yeah. But everybody is adding that four to 400,000 to 500,000 acres back in that intended to get planted last year, but yeah. never did. Yeah. Uh, so it's last year. We're looking at a repeat. Yeah. of. We're basically looking at a repeat of 2015 yeah. at this point. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, uh, Jody Campiche also made uh, a presentation on uh, really kind of the global outlook and, and the economic outlook for cotton going into 2016. And, you know, and quite bluntly, as uh, uh, they're basically saying low cotton prices, uh, too, many, too much global stock and uncertainties about uh, global mill cotton use are going to make 2016 another challenging year. I don't think that's a big surprise to anybody at this point. Um, USD estimates, uh, USDA, excuse me, estimates U.S. mill use at 3.6 million bales. That's up 25,000 bales from two years ago uh, and marks the fourth consecutive year of increased consumption by U.S. mills. But the strength of the U.S. dollar right now is starting to create some challenges for, uh, for other parts of the cotton segment, particularly those, those folks who are spinning yarn and looking to export it. Uh, the export markets are going to continue to be the primary outlet for, uh, for U.S. raw fiber. Um, but because of massive stockpiles that are sitting in, uh, in China and expectations for limited quota, uh, we're not going to be looking at China as a primary uh, export market anymore. In fact, uh, they're looking at export numbers, let me pull them up here, of roughly 4.75 million bales, and that's down from 5.5 million last year, which was down significantly from the year before. Uh, they're looking at mill use uh, continuing to decline in China. Uh, and the biggest problem there is even though they can, man they can sort of manipulate the cotton price internally within the country, it's still almost twice the, uh, twice the price of polyester at this point. Even then polyester prices based on oil prices have also weakened but it's still significantly less expensive for mills uh, to spend polyester at this point than it is cotton. So again there's one of the big challenges facing the industry uh, this year. Uh, India is going to continue as the world's largest cotton producer and second largest exporter. Uh, looking at world stocks projecting to decline which is good news by 6.3 million bales this year. Uh, the the flip side of that is this reduction is not significant enough to uh, to re help reduce global inventories that begin the year at roughly 103 million bales. So it's uh, you're looking at a situation where normally you would look at information like this and say it's uh, it's it's rather bullish. Uh, then you're talking about global consumption exceeding production uh, that normally would help prices a little bit. But in the market that we're dealing with these days and, and, the, uh, and the uncertainties in, in other countries uh, and economic situations, uh, the implications are just not as clear cut. And I think as we sit back and look at the market right now, uh, that's still pretty evident. Absolutely. Uh, looking at some of the other, other n items of note out of the, uh, the NCC meeting, it's always the point where, uh, where they tend to elect new leadership for the coming year, uh, hand out a few awards to some very deserving folks. 
Uh, and let's take a real quick look through through some of the leadership changes that, uh, that we're going to be at, uh, that the council is is moving into this year. Shane Stevens, as as Beck mentioned, out of uh, with Staple Cotton out of Greenwood, Mississippi, was elected uh, NCC chairman for this year. Uh, the vice chairman is uh, is Ronnie Lee, uh, a grower out of Georgia. Uh, Barry Evans, a grower from Cress, Texas, was elected as secretary treasurer. Uh, three new NCC vice presidents, Robert Lacey from Lubbock, Mike Quinn out of Garner, North Carolina, uh, and Kent Fountain out of Surrency, Georgia. Uh, those, uh, those are three new vice presidents that will, uh, will join three current vice presidents uh, on, the, uh, on the board or as, a, as an officer. Uh, the, the holdovers from uh, vice presidents are Colter Paxson from Wilson, North Carolina, Joe Nicosia, uh, from Cordova, Tennessee, and David Hastings out of Malden, South Carolina. So congratulations to all of those folks. Yeah, yeah. I spoke with um, part of the reason I'm in, or the reason we do the annual meeting every year is where we conduct our sort of first interview with the new incoming uh, chairman of the uh, council. Uh, the outgoing chairman this year was Sledge Taylor, who just so happened to be our recent achievement award winner. Um, and so I have spent you know, some time talking with Sledge over the past couple of months, and I kind of got it's the first time that we awarded our award to a sitting council chairperson, right? So right. I, over the, the two months I'm trying to conduct interviews with this guy and line up pictures, I'm getting sort of a taste of the schedule that they yeah. keep the yeah. person. Yeah, we're basically trying to keep him in the country. Exactly, yeah. Point. Yes. You know, he's he was just right down the road. Uh, Como, Mississippi is about, what do you think, an hour? 45 minutes. Yeah. And so, you know, it wouldn't be anything for me to just hop in my car and run down there and get a picture of him, except that, you know, he's in, he could be in Nairobi. He was truly in Nairobi one day when I was trying to get a hold of him. Um, so I say all that to say this position, the chairman of the National Cotton Council, is basically the face of the industry when it comes to going and sitting in front of the World Trade Organization and pleading the case of American cotton producers, mm -hmm. sitting down in the offices uh, in the U.S. Capitol building in Washington, D.C. with various leaders in, in Congress. Um, this is the guy who's going to be sitting there shaking hands and pleading your case. So it's an important it's an important position. It's why we put this guy on our cover every March issue. Uh, in fact, Shane will be on our March issue. Um, I'm, I'm having to write that story down. I'm about a day late with it. But... Um, <laughs> So, you know, you, this, is, this is the reason we make a big deal out of this, guys, because it is, it is an important position. So, so I caught up a little bit with Shane in Dallas. He's a little bit different than the past handful. I mean, as far back as my limited memory goes back in that he's not a farmer. You know, all of these guys have been farmers, uh, among other, and of course they all have, you know, years of experience in various association work and are very adept just as adept at a business table as they mm -hmm. are behind the wheel of a tractor. Shane Shane doesn't come from that, or rather he has never himself farmed, but as he told me there in Dallas, uh, he's worked at Staple Cotton he's, uh, since he graduated from UT Martin in 85. He moved to Greenwood to be at Staple Cotton in about 92, and since that time, all he's done is, is work with farmers. I mean, he, as he explained it to me, look, you know, they're, how long has that been now? Eight and 16 is 24 you know, that's a quarter century of if a farmer has a problem, that's his problem. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. he, he's the one who's been out there working with these guys, helping them where, where he can. So, I mean, he, he's no stranger to agriculture whatsoever. Um, he's a sharp guy. 
He uh, lives there in Greenwood. He's got a wife, Janet, and three kids, Kelsey, Kristen, and Shane. As he was telling me, I'm going through my chicken scratch notes that I wrote as I was interviewing him. Uh, you know, I don't want to get too deep into that, but he's a sharp guy, and, and he will do us proud, I think. And um, Very articulate guy. Too. Absolutely. I mean, very, very smart. Um, so I'll be looking forward to, to the year ahead. It's going to be an interesting year. I kept throwing – I was <laughs> – I kept tossing out there to the question, like, yeah, you know, we're going to have a new president during your time. I mean, you're going to be, uh, you know, maybe having to meet with this new person. Do you, are you favoring anybody? And he was sharp enough to avoid <laughs> all of that. So, um, you know, he was a good, uh, he was a good interview, and I get the feeling he's going to be a very good chairman for the National Cotton Council. I agree. I agree completely. From the folks at the council I've talked with, they're uh, they're very excited about what Shane's going to bring to the table this year. Uh, as, uh, as most of you know, also the National Cotton Council has several affiliated organizations uh, that are part of the, that, that work and operate under the NCC umbrella. Uh, those organizations also elected leadership during their, uh, their caucus meetings in Dallas. Uh, the, the Cotton Council International, which is the international marketing arm for U.S. cotton. Uh, the new president there is Keith Lucas out of Garner, North Carolina. Uh, the National Cotton Jenners Association. Uh, new president there is Ron Kraft out of Plains, Texas. And for American Cotton Producers, who is really a, a very strong advisory group to the council in terms of activities and, uh, and focus uh, from a grower perspective, uh, the new president there is Michael Tate out of Huntsville, Alabama, a good friend of ours and also a former Cotton Grower Cotton Achievement Award yep. winner. Uh, the council also elected 35 directors. I will not name all of them at this point. At this point, you'll find a whole lot more coverage about these people, uh, the the leadership, and some of the things that happened uh, at the uh, at the annual meeting when uh, our March issue hits your your mailboxes sometime here within the next couple of weeks. And again, just real quickly. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of elections, there's a lot of meetings and things like that, but there's also a couple of awards that are an annually presented at this meeting. Uh, our good friend Jimmy Dodson from Robstown, Texas, uh, who's a, a cotton producer and a, and a longtime industry advocate, uh, received the council's 2015 Harry S. Baker Distinguished Service Award. This is their top award uh, that they uh, that they award they provide every year. To, uh, to someone who's provided extraordinary service, leadership, and dedication to the U.S. cotton industry. And, uh, and Jimmy certainly meets the criteria for, for that. Also, <coughs> excuse me, the National Cotton Jenners Association also award their, uh, the Horace Hayden National Cotton Jenner of the Year Award. This year it, was, uh, it went to Louis Colombini, who uh, manages Westside Farmer Farmers Co-op Gins in Fresno, California, and a very, very active person in the California ginning industry. And Barry Nevius, who's a safety and loss control specialist for the Southeastern Cotton Ginners Association, received the uh, NCGA Charles Owen Distinguished Service Award. So congratulations to those individuals. And again, uh, check out our March issue for, for more details on, on these and other topics from, from the meeting. Yeah, absolutely. There's There was... Much to discuss uh, coming out of that meeting, um, including providing a little more color on some of these topics that we've discussed, a lot more color uh, on a few of them. So uh, do check out our March issue when it gets to you. 
When we come back from this break we're going into here in a second, uh, we are going to talk about another one of those topics coming out of Dallas, another one of those topics that will be covered more extensively in our March issue, and that is this business of the oilseed designation. Um, some news broke on that front on the Thursday, I believe, uh, heading into this meeting that started on Friday, so there was a lot going on. I just uh, Luckily, we had access to House Ag Committee Chair um, Representative Mike Conaway from Texas, and so we got to hear a little bit of his perspective, and uh, when we come back from this break, I want to tell you a little bit about what he had to say. So stick around, and we will talk about this business of the oilseed designation right after this break. So, all right, we want to talk now about something that is, you know, as Jim and I are sitting here discussing off camera or off mic, uh, as it were, it's it's a little more detailed. It's something that is uh, sort of bureaucratic in nature, and it's beyond the scope, largely, of a couple of um, journalism Journalism hacks, or jur- journalism grads hack in my case. We'll accept that. Yeah. Um, but we are going to do our best to sort of flesh out this issue of the oilseed designation, which has been a, been grabbing a lot of headlines here, and we've been trying to keep up. And, and um, for my sake, we're going to keep it at sort of a 100-level oilseed 101 as far as what has gone on with this issue uh, sort of, I'm going to start chronologically, and Jim is going to jump in here and explain stuff to me as it needs explaining. So back in October, uh, this issue first arises, the first sort of headlines that I see revolving around it, when the council, sensing that um, the economic situation around cotton is not great, you know, they are looking for um, some support, some protection where they can, they think they find it in this issue of the oilseed designation. So back back in October, um, the NCC began urging Ag Secretary uh, Vilsack to make this designation and issue a cottonseed support policy. Um, back then, uh, the sort of the uh, news peg was that the council was asking USDA to consider establishing a price loss coverage PLC policy for cottonseed under the authority granted by the commodity title which gives the secretary the authority to designate eligible oil seeds for the commodity title safety net provision. So um, basically, as Jim was explaining it to me a second ago, what we're talking about here is if Vilsack were to make this designation, what you're talking about is a little more price support as we head into the 2016 season. Right, and if, if you sit back and look at the list of, of what are considered oil seeds at this point, obviously you have corn, you have soybeans, you have canola, you have, uh, you know, a number of other little specialty crops. And the one that, that is strikingly missing from that list, uh, in spite of the fact that it's a very, very popular oil for, for cooking and other other things, uh, is cotton. Yeah. Uh, you know, traditionally people look at cotton seed as something, well, we, you know, we move it away from the gin, we put it in a truck, and we haul it to a dairy farm somewhere. And, yes, that's a, that's a good market for it. But, again, there's no... There's no commodity, there's no price support or price protection underneath it. It's truly a free market situation. Yeah. As I understand. And this is and this is, you know, again, a journalism person, a journalism grad, uh, <laughs> trying to talk economics. Yeah. And this is all based on discussions with economists. So my apologies to those I've talked to whenever I butcher this. 
completely. No, that sounded that sounded like a you know a good 100 level sort of recap of what we're talking about. To be sure, I have cooked with cottonseed oil before. As have know, I. Yes. The, the board gives us these. <laughs> the cotton board used to our old friend Brad Robb used to give us uh, some cottonseed oil to cook with on occasion. On the rare occasion that I do cook, that's what I reach for. So um, anyhow. To move us along sort of chronologically, that was back in October when this issue was sort of first raised. In December, uh, the council sent a group of uh, grower delegates uh, to appear before a House Ag subcommittee to sort to sort of gain favor for this effort. And uh, by all accounts, they succeeded. Congress, in the uh, months that followed, led by House Ag Chair Mike Conaway, who was in Dallas this past weekend at the NCC annual meeting, have sort of campaigned... Uh, on this issue to Vilsack to make this designation. They've all, you know, uh, I believe both sides of the House, correct me if I'm wrong, Jim, sent a petition to... The, I mean, the, the House The House sent a, uh, a letter with 100 signatures yeah. on it. Uh, the Senate uh, the Senate efforts, I think there were 29 senators, basically from cotton-producing states, that signed a similar letter yeah. to go to the Secretary. Bipartisan, right? Totally bipartisan. Yeah. Uh, and that's just in addition to letters of support coming from other organizations like uh, uh, you know American Soybean Association Farm Bureau Farm Bureau yep. uh, you know so it's uh, and, and and banking and financial institutions which, which should give you some indication of how important they look at at this in terms of uh, from a financial perspective and you know in working with farmers for uh, for production loans right so you've got industry-wide not mm-hmm. just cotton industry but ag industry-wide support for Vilsack to make this designation. These are in the months after December. So so fast forward, Vilsack's considering the action. He's consulting his lawyers. The whole time I'm reading the story, by the way, I have, uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, uh, the song Lawyers, Guns, and Money going in my head. Uh, <laughs> it'll come to me. Anyhow, so anyhow, Vilsack's been considering the action. Uh we get fast forward to February 3rd. This is a week ago, last Thursday, I believe. Um, Vilsack's been consulting his lawyers, and he finally comes out with his decision, and he shoots down the pleas from the cotton industry, and essentially he punted the issue back to Congress. He said, basically, uh, if you want me to do this, you're going to have to reopen the farm bill and put this provision back in there. So basically... um, what you have here is a clear difference in opinion among Vilsack's listening to his own lawyers, okay? But now there are lawyers for Conaway, there are lawyers of these congressional types who are Vilsack's lawyers are saying you don't have the authority, right, Vilsack, to make this designation. They're going to have to grant you the authority. Okay. Conaway and others are saying, you know, actually yeah, you do. And so to be sure, this is not a contentious situation. And Conaway was stressing that when I was talking to him in Dallas. He said, you know, this is a very amicable conversation. He likes Vilsack. I think Vilsack likes Conaway. Um, they've, they have worked well together in the past. This is sort of a situation where they're like, they got to let these lawyers come to a consensus. Right. Here. And I, th- I think the other thing that, that's come out of this is Secretary Vilsack is not anti-cotton. Right. He wants to do whatever he can to help the cotton industry at this point, recognizing the the current situation that the industry finds itself in, uh, what he's I think the word he used when he gets into it uh, was in describing in in making his announcement a week ago Thursday uh, was he's stymied yeah. at this point. And and the concern again 
I believe, rolls back to the World Trade Organization uh, ruling on, in favor of Brazil back in 2000. Uh, the fact that uh, you know, the, the S-word subsidy uh, seemed to become uh, a sticking point uh, there. And even though the U.S. cotton industry has bent over backwards and probably much farther than they should have on this, um, that the specter of that, that ruling and that, that settlement is still setting out there. And I think there's probably, my impression is, there's still a lot of sensitivity in Washington about doing anything that could be considered a, quote, subsidy for the cotton industry, even though you're dealing with cotton seed rather than fiber. Sure. And and as we all know, and I know I'm preaching to the choir on this podcast here, but the United States doesn't operate in a vacuum. And, you know, China is over there paying their own farmers north of a dollar for, for a pound of cotton, you know, stra- you know. I don't even know why. I'm not going to sit here and get worked up about everything that's going else elsewhere in the globe, but we know that, that... That may be our discussion for the next podcast. Yeah, right, exactly. It's a whole <laughs> it's a whole different can of worms, and we're running a little long here. I want to read to you verbatim uh, a line out of Conaway's letter to Vilsack. So Conaway responded. Conaway is the House Ag Chair, Ag Committee Chair. Um, on February 5th, so Vilsack basically punts the issue on February 3rd. He says, I'm not going to do it. You guys have to come up with a new law that, allowed, that grants me the authority to do it. Conaway's response two days later, he, he wrote, The statute, he's talking about in the Farm Bill, plainly reads that, quote, Other oil seeds are defined as, quote, A crop of sunflower seed, rape seed, canola, safflower, flax seed, mustard seed, cramb? <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce that one. Sesame seed, or any other oil seed designated by the secretary. So that seems to me kind of way it seems like you got a point there. I mean that's pretty pretty plain language. The secretary being Vilsack can designate an other oil seed as uh, coming under this protection. So so basically where we are right now is as lawyers do they are haggling over the meaning of these these very specific phrases that exist in this law. Um, but it's an ongoing conversation. That's, that's, that was Conaway's big message to this group at the NCC annual meeting. He says this fight, you know, I, I think I tweeted a, a, an exact quote from him. It says the fight is not over. You know, he's talking to, they are continuing this dialogue with Vilsack. The lawyers are still talking. Um, I did, I had, a, I went to a press event with Conaway and, uh, he said, I asked him point blank, I said this idea that you guys would go back and open the farm bill to place specific language in there allowing him to do this, is that, do you find it feasible? And he kind of laughed it off. He said, no, that's that's absolutely not, that's not something that's going to happen. Nor, and it, but he said, you know, to be sure, it shouldn't have to. We shouldn't have, mm-hmm. we're not, we don't have to go to that length to get this to happen. Um, his big message to the crowd there in Dallas Number one, you yourself get be politically involved about this issue. Talk to your representatives. Throw your support behind it, no matter how you can. And uh, he said, to be sure, you know, you, you mentioned uh, the letter from Farm Bureau, the, the mm-hmm. letters from other commodity organizations, the letters from banks. He said that sort of thing resonates loud and clear in Bill Sachs' office, you know, that it's not just the cotton industry campaigning on cotton's behalf here. It's others you know, ag types from from all across the spectrum have kind of rallied behind 
cotton on this issue, and he says that's that's a big help that we have to we have to keep banging the drum basically, yeah. and with their help. Um, I kind of now this is the first time I've had an audience with a sitting uh, House of Representative member <laughs> as a uh, as a cotton grower editor, so. Uh, I probably had some questions that he doesn't normally have to have to contend with, but I asked him to handicap. I said, well, you, would you just handicap it? You, yes or no? How, how, what are the odds you think this happened? And he kind of laughed. He was like, I don't, I don't, I'm not in the business of handicapping things. <laughs> He's a politician. Right. Yeah. He <laughs> dodged it deftly. Um, but to be sure, I left more upbeat about the issue than I was when I walked in the room. Um, Conway's a sharp guy. Not to delve too far off the issue here, but I but I went in. That was Saturday, I believe, and I went in that night and watched uh, one of the presidential debates. And I was sitting there thinking, you know, I I find Conway infinitely more likable than anybody else, <laughs> any of these other politicians that I'm watching uh, on either side of the aisle. But that's I don't want to get too deep into that. Yeah, he, we, we don't do politics. No, we this. do not. We do no. not. But to be sure, as a politician, Conway struck me as a very sharp guy. Very engaging, and uh, I was glad to know that he is sort of uh, championing our cause on Capitol Hill. And, uh, again, I I left the weekend more upbeat about the uh, other oilseed designation issue than I had when I I went there. So I don't know if you had anything else to add. No, I mean, I I think – if if anything, the cotton industry is, uh, has has built a reputation or has earned a reputation for um, having strong alliances and strong programs in Washington. Uh, this strikes me as another a, a really good example of the tenacity that this industry has in trying to protect itself and and uh, and the growers. Uh, and the other aspect, the other the other parts of the cotton industry, and it seems to me they've they've really, you know, tied in very well with someone uh, in Representative Conway, who can match match that same level of tenacity. Uh, there's no give up in this one. Yeah. And it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out here over the uh, the next few weeks and and months. Indeed, it will. So uh, we are going to leave the issue right there. We're going to take a quick break, and uh, when I come back, we're going to get out of here. Okay, so that will just about do it for this installment of the Cotton Companion podcast. With Jim Steadman's help, I got over my mental block. It's Warren Zevon. Warren Zevon, uh, or Zevon as it were, is the one who did Lawyers, Guns, and Money. Just as an FYI, I'm glad I got it cleared up because it was driving me crazy. And I'm sure it was driving people listening to this podcast crazy as well. No doubt, no doubt. Actually, or they were shouting yeah, shouting the answer out yeah. to you that you just couldn't hear. It's Zevon, you idiot. No. So, so... On that note, this will just about do it for this installment of the Cotton Companion Podcast. I want to take this time to invite you all to continue to participate uh, in our Text and Expert program, where you stand a chance to win uh, $100 from a drawing courtesy of our sponsors at BASF. To enter, you simply text the word COTTON to 313131, 
and from there you'll be prompted to text us your farm-related question. Um, if your question is selected by the editors of Cotton Grower, that's Jim and I, we'll match it up with an expert in your area, most likely an extension expert who you're familiar with, and we're going to feature it in an edition, in an upcoming edition of Cotton Grower Magazine. So it's exciting stuff, it's fun stuff, help yourself out and uh, participate in our program. Just text COTTON to 313131 to get started. We want to thank you sincerely for joining us. If you like what you're hearing, by all means, tell your farmer buddies about us. They can find it by going to, they can find the Cotton Companion podcast by going to cottongrower.com and searching for Cotton Companion or by subscribing to our channel on iTunes. Another great way to be sure you receive every installment of the Cotton Companion is to sign up for our weekly e-newsletter. You can do that by going to the by going to www.cottongrower.com, scrolling to the bottom of the page, and finding the link to subscribe to our e-newsletter there. Uh, Jim works hard each week to uh, to bring you that e-newsletter. It's got a lot of a lot of good cotton in, insight in it, so I know you'll like it. If you are familiar with iTunes on your smartphone, please go ahead and subscribe to our channel. Leave us a rating and let us know what you think of our pod. Also, make sure you follow us on social media. We are at Cotton Grower Mag on Twitter. And on Facebook, you can find us by searching for Cotton Grower Magazine. You can find our latest issue, which will be the February issue. February issue should be hitting mailboxes actually this week. Yeah, I think it is actually. My mom, my mom texted me about it. So <clears throat> You can find our latest issue. Shout out to mom. There you go. Hey, mom. You can find our latest issue, the February issue, hitting your mailboxes uh, as we speak. So you, you, you should have them by the time this podcast reaches you. This podcast is produced by Mark Antonelli, who works at the Mothership, Meister Media Worldwide, in lovely Willoughby, Ohio. My name is Beck Barnes, and I will be back with you in two weeks on the next episode of The Cotton Companion. For now, on behalf of my own companion, Jim Stebman, we wish you and your farm all the best. <laughs>